I don't know if you guys are, are aware of this, but we have been in Revelation all fall. And this is our last week in the book. Woo, yeah, okay, people are excited to be out of Revelation, maybe sad uh, to be moving out of Revelation. Uh, I know I am both going to miss it. I've really enjoyed preaching through it, and also I think sermon prep is about to get a lot easier. So I have mixed feelings as well. Uh, But as we have moved through Revelation this fall, we've been talking a lot about what Revelation actually means, that this word Revelation uh, is a translation of the word apocalypse. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we've talked about what Revelation means, we have said that Revelation really is an... Anybody? An uncovering, there we go, yes. Does, does anyone remember that? Are you with me this morning? We're gonna be taking, a, taking take out your number two pencils, a review on Revelation, just, just kidding. But we are gonna review it. Because I want this to stick, that what Revelation is, is it's an uncovering, it's a, it's a showing of what's going on behind the curtain. It's a, it's a sneak peek to, to the reality that is unfolding in the midst of the reality that we see and experience with our senses. And we've talked about how this idea of a behind-the-scenes view, at first when we read Revelation, is hard for us to grasp because the images are so unfamiliar. But that in reality, in our day-to-day lives, in our world, we experience this unveiling or this uncovering all the time. That we're actually really familiar with this genre of, of literature or of media. Right? We've talked about podcasts that do this. We've talked about Netflix documentaries that do this. You guys have heard me talk about SeaWorld, right? And I'm just going to remind you of that SeaWorld illustration because I want it to stick for you. That when I was a kid, uh, we had this VHS about it, Jack Hanna, who was like a nature guy, uh, leading, leading us through SeaWorld and giving us the behind-the-scenes view. And I was like, yes, my life is changing because I've seen the behind-the-scenes view. I want to go to SeaWorld. And then, as a grown-up, I saw another documentary about SeaWorld called Blackfish, right? And that also changed my perspective. This behind-the-scenes view of what was happening in SeaWorld made me not want to go. It was an uncovering or a revealing of what was going on behind the scenes that, that changed my behavior in my life. Are you guys with me this morning? Okay, right? That's Revelation. It's just kind of an ancient and weirder idea of version of Blackfish. It's showing us what is going on behind the scenes. It's showing us, it's encouraging us in how to live in the unseen reality or in, in the present by showing us the unseen reality of the present. Can okay, I say that one more time? It's encouraging us about how to live in the present by showing us the unseen reality of the present and the unseen reality of the future, but all with the idea that it's going to affect the way that we live now. And if you remember, in the very first sermon in this series, we installed a safety bar as we got into the roller coaster of Revelation's imagery, right? And the safety bar, we reminded ourselves that Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that was written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. And it cannot mean something to us that it did not first mean to the people who first got the letter, And so it's important that we understand what it meant to them and the theme of this letter, the theme that was true for the first people who heard it and the people who read it and the theme that's true for us is that there's two words. Jesus wins. Yes, I heard it. Yes, Jesus wins. That is the theme of Revelation. Jesus wins. In fact, it's that Jesus has already won. Jesus wins, and Jesus has already won. And that is the safety bar we installed on this roller coaster because we saw a lot of crazy images in this book, right? 
Yes? Yes? Yeah, with the throne room of God, we talked about beasts and dragons coming up from the sea and horns and eyes and, and two witnesses and a, a lake of fire and a city coming down from heaven dressed as a bride, all kinds of images. And what we have remembered and anchored ourselves in is that all of those images are pointing us to the fact that Jesus wins, that Jesus has already won. That is the point of the book of Revelation. That's the unseen reality of the present and the unseen reality of the future, that Jesus has won, that he's going to win. And so the question has been, how will we live in light of it? And so this morning, as we close out the book, we're going to be reading the last 11 verses of the book of Revelation. And here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about at the end what we talked about at the beginning, because that's the way the book is set up but the end mirrors the beginning. We're going to talk about Christ's promise. His promise that I am coming soon. And we're going to talk about our response to that promise, living in the freedom and the urgency of that promise. And then we're going to talk about the chorus of invitation that the book ends with. So Christ's promise, our response, and the chorus of invitation. So that's where we're going. So I'm going to invite Julie to come up. Julie Langmaid is going to be reading our scripture for us. Julie Gilpin. Wow, Julie, I've known you for a long time. Sorry. Uh, out of Revelation 21, uh, if you want to, excuse me, Revelation 22, uh, you can follow along in your Bibles. It's literally the last words in your Bible before you get to all the references. Uh, and if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind us. Okay. Um, so we're going to start in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer do, still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we uh, are thankful for your word. Uh, and Jesus, as we close out this book, even as we read these last 11 verses, Lord, I'm aware of how uh, insufficient I am or my words are to communicate the majesty of what you're, what you're opening our eyes to here. So we pray, Lord, that you would take this time uh, and that you would use it, that you would breathe on it and that you would move in our hearts this morning. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start by talking about the promise of Christ that we see in this book. And really, the, the pro, in our passage this morning that, that really frames the entire book. And we hear it in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. That that, that call, uh, that reality that Jesus is on his way, that he's returning to earth, frames the entire book. And it, in fact, it explains verses 10 and 11. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. That John is being told, no, this message needs to be preached. It needs to be heard. It needs to be read because I am coming soon. And then again in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. But really, because it's been almost 2,000 years, right? By any objective human standard, uh, that doesn't seem very soon. Let's acknowledge that. In fact, 2,000 years, it seems so long in our kind of human counting that maybe we we can be excused, or we want to excuse ourselves at least, uh, from believing it will happen tomorrow. Of course we don't think that. It's been 2,000 years. Soon, soon in what sense? That this promise can seem very far away, sometimes not even true. And that's kind of just the temporal nature of it, not, not to mention this existential question of Jesus coming soon. Like, Jesus feels so far away, doesn't he? Or often? That it's so much easier for us and for our world to think about Jesus as, uh, as this person who lived a long time ago and now is gone, like anyone else is gone. It's easy for Christianity to be an ideology or a set of beliefs that we give mental assent to. It's as if Jesus becomes this abstract noun. But the promise of this passage is that Jesus is not an abstract now, not now, and that there will be a day when we see and experience with our senses the reality of him as a proper noun, as like a, as like a, a, a real being. But as, as Christians, we confess that while the, while the spiritual and the physical, uh, the material uh, interact and intersect now, that there is gonna be a day when they collide at Jesus' return. And that can feel so far away from our day-to-day experience that Christ's return can seem almost irrelevant to us. That it's easier to describe and fight over the fine points of revelation than to actually hope in our hearts that Jesus is coming. Do you connect with that at all? And I've got to ask, because I've been wrestling with this even this morning, is do you even want it? Like, do you, do you have in you a desire? Do you feel that hope in Jesus coming? Because if I'm honest with you, and that's what I try to be up here, okay? That's important. The times that I am most desperate for Jesus to come is when I am sick. 
and there's nothing I can do for myself. And I'm like, Jesus, just please come back because I am so over it. I would rather be dead than be sick right now. But in my day-to-day life, that I, I in, a, in a lot of ways, am very comfortable with the kingdom I have created for myself. And yeah, like there are things I would tweak, but I am very confident in my ability to do them. That my, in my ability to make the necessary changes. So my hope is not in Jesus coming. My hope is in Jesus getting on my agenda to make my kingdom what I want it to be. But what about those moments in your life when you were desperate? Like when was the last time you were desperate? And you don't even have to be a Christian to have moments in your life that are like that. When you, are, when you are desperate because of the intense amount of pain that has come into your story in ways that you did not expect. And that in those moments of immense pain, uh, those are moments that we are crying out to, to God. God, would you do something? God, would you do something for me that I cannot do for myself? And if you've ever had a moment like that, then usually there's a time when that moment passes. And we're so glad that that moment has passed, right? And yet, there's something about it that we miss. And what we miss is the desperation and the way that the pain in our lives has made us feel more alive and has made us feel closer to God because of that desperation. Have you ever missed that desperation? And here's the trick that we play on ourselves, that the enemy plays on us is that what we like to believe is that in those, in those acute times we are living in pain, but at the rest of our lives, that the pain is not that real. Friends, the pain is that real. And it is constant. That living in a world that is broken by sin is a painful thing to do. And we have spent a lot of our lives shaming ourselves for feeling that pain, trying to convince ourselves that it's not real. Like you stub your toe and it hurts really bad, and someone says to you, well, you know, it would hurt a lot worse if it were cut off. You're like, well, okay, sure. That doesn't make it not hurt now, right? But that's, 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 those are the games we play with ourselves. Yeah, I mean, does my family have problems? Sure. But it's not as bad as those guys over there, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever... That, that what we're doing is shrinking our pain down and minimizing and trying to convince ourselves that it doesn't exist. When, friends, the fact that we have pain in our lives is the reminder that we need Jesus to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So rather than trying to fool ourselves and fool everyone else that everything is fine and that we're not in pain, it's us admitting that this world is really hard and that our lives are really hard and that we have desires that remain unmet that reminds our hearts to yearn for Jesus' return. Because when we get in touch with that place, we can acknowledge, yeah, we want him to come back. And yet the promise can still feel so far away. And that's where it's important that I remind you this morning that this text reminds us this morning of the character of our Jesus. Because people make promises all the time. But often what happens is those people don't have the ability to carry out those promise or they don't have the desire to actually follow through. So when we see this promise from Jesus that is hard to believe, we've got to ask ourselves, does Jesus have the ability, does he have the desire, does he have the kind of character to follow through on his promise? And let me remind you about the Jesus that we have been studying. That this is the Jesus who says, 
I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. This is the Jesus who says, I am the source of the entire biblical narrative, and I am the culmination of the entire narrative, who says, I am the, I'm the point of light in the midst of this dark sky. This is our Jesus who we have seen in the throne room worshiped alongside God the Father as holy and totally worthy of our worship. The Jesus who is worshiped and will be worshiped by people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation over the whole expanse of the globe from every period of time. That is the Jesus who we're talking about. It is the Jesus who alone is able to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father Almighty, the scroll of God's redemptive plan for history, and open it and carry it out. We're talking about that Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus who is alone in his authority to judge the world with justice and bring the peace that we long for, to overcome all of his enemies. That is the Jesus who has made this promise to us. Can that Jesus be believed? Does that Jesus keep his promises? He certainly has the ability, even if it's hard to believe, even if it's hard to see, and there's more. Verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say come. That what that reminds us is that if we are the bride, who is the groom? Jesus. Jesus. That Jesus is the groom. That he doesn't, he's not simply able to fulfill his promise, but that he has the desire to do it like a groom looking forward to his wedding day. Because what kind of God is like that? I'm, I'm reading this book right now, of course, about the Roman Empire, okay, because I love it. And uh, what, what these Roman emperors would do all the time is they would deify themselves. Like they would tell people, just P.S., I'm a God. Or they would die and then other people would be like, hey, just by the way, that person is now a God. Everyone's like, yay. But the reason they did that is because they wanted people... Be, not because of how much they loved other people, they proclaimed themselves gods because of how much they wanted other people to love them, because of how much they loved themselves. What they were ensuring is that into, over the course of history that people would continue to remember them and think about them and offer them praise. That's what it meant for them to become gods. That is not the God that we worship. The God that we worship is a God who says, this is not about how much you love me, this is about how much I love you. That is the Jesus who is our groom, who looks at us with longing and has the desire to come back and bring his kingdom here to be with us forever. Yes, he has the ability, and yes, he has the desire to fulfill his promise. So rather than questioning whether or not this promise is true, what we should be doing instead is reconsidering our own perspective. And guys, if, that, if, this is, if that's hard for you, you just gotta know you're in good company because the people who wrote the Bible also struggled with that. Peter says this. He's in telling it to people that he loves. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That what he's saying is that Jesus has this great desire to come, but he's not here yet because there are more people he is bringing to himself. 
He's not slow as we count slowness. Would we adopt his perspective? Paul wrestles with it. Paul says this. He says, besides, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake for sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Do we know when he's coming back? No. But I know this. Whatever that day is, it's closer now than when I first believed. And when we finish this sermon, it might be a long one. Who knows, okay? When we finish this, it's going to be closer than when we started because he's coming. He's coming. He's so close. He's pressing in. He's on his way. And the evil and the darkness that we experience in this world, he tells us to expect it and to expect it to go up, to grow more intense as he gets closer. So do you think he's getting closer? Yeah. He's so close. So then how do we live? In verse 20 of this passage, it says, he who testifies to these these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And then John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. What does it look like when we are living out that come? How do we wait? Because Jesus is very concerned with our waiting and teaching us how we wait. Because we are all waiting for something, aren't we? Again, whether or not you're a Christian, there are all kinds of things that you see in this world that are broken that you want to see changed, that you are waiting to see changed. And there are all kinds of things in our individual lives that we are waiting to see changed, that we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And who we are waiting on and the character of that person and and the strength of that waiting, how we experience the waiting, it changes the day-to-day of our lives. We do a lot of waiting. Like, my wife and I were on a trip last week in Austin, and there was a woman who came up to us on the street, and she said, I love your energy. I was like, well, that is an interesting start to this conversation, okay? And the conversation kind of unfolds. She tells us we deserve our vacation. I'm like, well, yes, thank you very much. I don't really know you, but I appreciate that, okay? And as it goes, she says, well, you know, I'm not just starting this conversation for no reason. There is something that I want. And what I'm hoping is that you will give a monthly donation to plant trees because if we don't plant a billion trees in the world this year, it's, it's irreversible. And I hope that, the, that my kids will be able to live in a world that is better than that. I don't have those kids yet, but I hope to have them one day. That's what she said. So much waiting there. So much desire. Like, oh, there's something that's broken and I want to see it fixed. So there's this kind of, this cosmic sense of that, but also this personal sense of waiting that she's got her own hopes and desires that are caught up and interconnected with all of these big things she wants to see happen in the world. Yes, and we're all like that. We're all like that. And what Revelation has been saying to us is, yes, of course that is true. Of course that is true. And rather than shrinking our lives down and trying to convince ourselves that there's not that much that we're waiting for, rather than shaming all of that pain, that we would, that we would look to Jesus and that we would recognize this world is not the way you created it to be. There's so much that I want to see changed, and yet I am waiting for you to bring it. But we're waiting for him to bring it that we're waiting with urgency. 
But when we talk about urgency, waiting with urgency, because Jesus talks about that all the time, by the way. He does all kinds of parables, parables about it. He encourages us, I could come at any time, like a thief in the night, so be ready. Like if you knew there was a thief coming to your house, you would be ready, right? I would certainly arm my Simply Safe. Yes, I would be ready. So there's this urgency that he's communicating in our readiness, but when we hear that urgency, I think it's easy for us to feel rushed or like hurried or harried or fearful or even anxious. Like when I was growing up and my dad would suddenly jump up from his chair and he would say, your mom's going to be home in five minutes, quick! <laughs> and you know what happened? Because it happened in your house too, right? We all scatter, everyone's picking stuff up, throwing things in cabinets, cleaning off the counter. And then sometimes he would say, oh, that's the garage door, quick. I'm like, okay, five minutes is not enough time, but when the garage door opens, it's definitely too late, right? But it wasn't just my dad, because whenever my grandma was coming over, my, my mom's mother-in-law, she would do the same thing. Quick, your grandma's coming, right? Get it ready. Is that what Jesus is saying? Come on, get it together, people. Is he, is he breeding that kind of urgency and anxiousness in us? What do you think? Okay, I hope you've been along here. Been, if you've been around here a while, I hope that you know the answer to that is no, right? That is not how Jesus is motivating us with, with fear or with shame because that's what that is. This sense that, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna be ready when he comes, so I've gotta like do all this stuff to make myself ready so that I can be pretty enough when my groom comes. No. And friends, we, we pile the shame on to motivate ourselves. Like, think about all of the, all of the places, you, if you've been following Jesus for a while, all of the ways that you thought you would be further along in your Christian life than where you are now. Do you ever feel bad about that? I do. I felt it yesterday. I was out raking the leaves, and I was so angry at God And then I was angry about the fact that I was angry. So ashamed of how angry I was and how much I didn't want to do the work to get here this morning. I didn't want to do it. And I spent so much time being mad about the fact, not only that I was mad at God, but being mad about the fact that I was mad. Do you get that? Oh, friends, that is not how our Jesus is motivating us. He knows he knows that we are not who we will be when he returns, and he doesn't expect us to be. He, he loved us before we did anything to clean ourselves up. Anything. He got engaged to us before any, anything was cleaned up in our lives. But he loved us before all of that because he loves us because he loves us. That's the Jesus that we're waiting for. And that changes the sense of urgency. It doesn't make it less urgent, but it's a different kind of urgent. It's like a bride waiting for her wedding day. And in Jesus' day, people didn't live together before they were married. They lived apart. But they had things that they had to accomplish for the wedding while they were apart. And so they were doing those things. But while they were doing them, there is this intense desire to be together. And there is this sense of I'm planning this whatever, this huge party and all of the things because I'm so excited to celebrate when my groom and I get to be together. 
So the planning comes from the sense of anticipation of the promise and of the relationship and of the coming of the one that you love. Right? That's a different kind of urgency. An urgency that's born out of love, not out of fear or anxiety. An urgency that's born out of uh, a reverence and respect, that kind of fear and love for God, not an anxious fear. So how do we do it? How do we get ready, right? If that's the urgency that we're to live in and there's freedom in that for us, then how do we live in it? What does that look like? This is what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Another way of saying it is we are his artistry. We're his poetry. That you are God's work of art. And if you are in Christ, that is true about you. And God has prepared good works that you should walk in them. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought we believed in grace. We don't believe in good works here. That's not true, okay? We believe that good works do not save us. Absolutely not. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And yet, because of the joy of that, then we're called in to to living that out uh, in the way that we live. Living it out in the way that we live. Yes. That we would do good works because of what God has done for us. Oh, and guys, if you, there is so much adventure in that because it is so uncharted. But if you're anything like me, what I'm always asking is, yeah, but what is the right way to do it? Okay, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, go ahead. Follow me on the adventure of figuring that out. Use all of the creativity that you have. And in this room, there's a lot of it. Use all of that creativity to figure out how to walk in and invite others into that love that I have poured onto and into you. That is the urgency of Jesus coming. That we would be making ourselves ready and beautiful by the works that we do. Because we look forward to him coming and that ultimately all of that goodness as, as broken and as kind of riddled with sin as it is, what it does is it shows the goodness and the beauty of the one who is coming, of the one who is worthy of our waiting and our doing in the meantime. That people who are urgently anticipating the, the coming of Jesus and who have found the freedom of that, this is not people who, who now sit on their hands. No, those are people who, because of the urgency and because of the freedom, are now applying all the creativity God has given them to live in an incredibly present way and love the people around them. That's what it looks like. And that's an invitation, that, that that kind of living, that kind of waiting, that kind of urgency and freedom becomes an invitation to the world. And we read about that invitation in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. I have always thought that that meant that the spirit and the bride were asking Jesus to come and come quickly. And it could mean that. Commentators have a lot of ideas, as they always do, Okay. But as this verse goes on, it says, and let the one who hears these words say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That we know at the very least that that last call is a call for the world to come. Come on, 
in all of the places that you are thirsty, that you are desperate, that there are things that you cannot do for yourselves, even though you try to go drink the water lots of other places, come and find it in Jesus. Come on. And if that call is for the world to come, then the call for the spirit and the bride can also be the call to come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and experience the life that he promises us. Come on. Come and taste this water and come and wash your robe is what Revelation talks about. Which is kind of a weird metaphor, right? Why is that? Why does that matter? The robe washing? Well, remember, this is all kind of in the context of a wedding. And when you go to a wedding, it's important that you wear the appropriate clothes. Like a few months ago, I was on the way to a wedding and we pulled up the invitation as we were trying to find parking and realized that it was actually a black tie wedding. I don't even think it was black tie optional. I think it was just black tie. I was like, good. This blue Sharpie suit is not the right color. I was horribly embarrassed. My wife, not bothered. But we show up, okay. We go into the wedding, and they didn't let me in. No, I'm just kidding. They let me in, okay. But that's what I was looking for, that sense of, <gasps> right? And you're like, well, okay. <laughs> well, you guys really are awake this morning. That's great. So the blue Sharpie suit, like how far is that off from black tie? I felt like it was pretty far, but not maybe not as far as I was experiencing it. But what if I showed up, just stick with me, in my flip-flops and my cargo shorts? Like, that would not be right, right? And like, let's say that this was not like a matter of access. Let's say that I had a tux hanging in my closet, which I do, but instead I chose to wear cargo shorts and flip-flops. That would be like the biggest forget you that I could give to that couple, right? I'm not going to choose to honor you or participate in this day in the way that you asked me to. I'm not going to give it the reference that it deserves. I'm going to do this my way because I'm going to make this day about me. That's what it means to show up to a wedding dressed inappropriately. And, and what is it that, that, that makes our robes dirty? Well, we get a list of it in verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and you're like, sorcerers, who is a sorcerer anymore, right? Sexually immoral, and maybe you think, well, that's kind of, you know, Bible stuff. Murderers, like, well, I've never murdered anybody, an idolater, whatever that means. You're like, oh, maybe I'm okay. And everyone who practices and loves falsehood. It's one of the ones you don't expect to see in a list like that. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But you guys, you've got to realize, that idea of loving and practicing falsehood, it's the antithesis of everything Revelation has been about because Revelation has been all about pulling back the curtain and showing us what's true. And we get that living in a way that is out of step with what is true is very offensive. If you watch any of our movies or listen to any of our music, you know that. That one of the most offensive things a person can do in the world that we currently live in is to live in a way that is out of touch with their true self, right? You can justify literally any behavior in your life if you were living out of your true self. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is watch Frozen, okay? We can talk about my thoughts about Frozen at a later time. But we can justify anything by, by being our true selves. But can we acknowledge that if we were all to go and start living out our true selves, I don't think the world is going to get a lot better. It, in fact, might get a lot worse. Like, if you look at what is happening in Israel right now, people who are there fully believe they are living out of their true selves, and what that sometimes leads to is terrorism. 
No, we've got to have a different standard for what it means to live out what is true. And we find that in the scriptures because what we see is that our Jesus is the beginning and the end of the story. He is the source of all of life. And he is the end to which all of life is pointing. He's the main character. Jesus wins. And if what we are trying to do is live our story without Jesus, we are living and loving in a way that's false. No matter how good we look on the outside, and I will tell you, some of you look a lot better than me. But if what is at the center of our lives is not Jesus, we are living in a way that is false. We're trying to show up to the wedding even though we've lived our lives hating the groom. And, and that Jesus is the one who calls to us and says, come, come and get the right clothes. Come and have your robe washed clean. And how is it made clean? What do we wash it in? Well, Revelation 7.14 tells us we wash it in the blood of the lamb, which again is very weird. If you've not been at church for a long time, you're like, there's a lot of talk about blood going on. Yeah. It's weird to us. It would not have been weird in the ancient world because they were sacrificing animals all the time. They're like, this is normal stuff. But what was abnormal is the idea that the blood of a sacrifice could actually cleanse you. Because they didn't have OxyClean, right? When blood got on their clothes, that was a stain. And it wasn't going away. So there's this reversal, there's this irony happening here, irony happening here that by washing our robes in the blood of Jesus, they somehow become more clean? It's because of what we talked about a few weeks ago, that the Jesus who takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father Almighty, who is able to fulfill God's plan for all of history, he's called the Lion of Judah. Remember that? He hears the Lion of Judah. And then when John turns to see the Lion of Judah, what does he see instead? A lamb, a little lamb. A lamito, I've always said, right? That's what the Greek means. A tiny lamb. A lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. That that's our Jesus. The Jesus who is the beginning and end of all things, who is the main character of the story, and who yet came to heaven as an earth. Came to heaven as an earth? What? Came to earth as a man who humbled himself and in a place of weakness gave his life up for the people that he loved to make them clean, to make a bride for himself for this wedding day because of how much he loved us. Also, the call, if you don't know Jesus, the call this morning is come on. Come on. You have to clean yourself up first. Come on and let him make you clean. Wash that robe in the blood of the Lamb. As weird as that sounds. Come and have your thirst met from a stream of living water, from Jesus himself. Come on. Oh, and as the church, our hope is that we would be a, the kind of community that says, come on. Not a church that says, go. Hey, go over there and like meet Jesus over there, right? Like I met him and now I'm over here, so you go over there. No, we're saying, come. Come with me to the Jesus that I come to because I am in need of Jesus continuing to do for me what I can't do for myself. Come with me. Oh, that's the kind of community we want to be. Come with me. Come with me to see and meet and experience and know Jesus. Come on. That's our Jesus. The Jesus who calls us to come. The Jesus who says, I'm not just calling you to come. I'm calling you to come because there's a day I'm coming back here. That's the day that we are waiting for. That we're waiting for with urgency and with freedom. Last story, okay? There's this uh, home up in Wisconsin that was started decades ago for kids with developmental disabilities. 
And as those kids grow up, they became adults, they continued to live in this home, this community. There's all kinds of help and training and, and ways of dignifying, uh, like giving work, all, all kinds of opportunities. And, and there was a guy there who asked, hey, like, what, what is the biggest expense you all have here? And the guy who ran the place said, you'll never believe it, but the biggest expense that we have is window cleaning. I was like, why? Because our friends spend every day with their faces glued to the windows. Because they've been told Jesus is coming back. That he could come back any day. And when he comes back, he's going to make the world right. And he's going to heal you, he's going to heal all of us. And those kids and then those adults, that they would go and push their faces up against the window asking, is today the day that Jesus comes? Oh, that there is something that they got that we so often miss in all of our over-intellectualizing of the story of Jesus. That our Jesus who loves us is coming back. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Lord, we confess our hearts are so often so cold to this idea of your returning. It feels so far away in time and of our day-to-day experience at times and Lord, we have shrunk our hearts uh, and our imaginations to what can be good in the world, to what we can see and control. Uh, Jesus, we repent of that, of our refusal to feel the pain that reminds us that you are coming, and that we need you to come. So Jesus, as we worship, as we pray, as we sing, Lord, would you wake our hearts back up? Would you give us the courage to have our hearts awoken uh, and to wait? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.